We have a saying in our culture, to hell in a handbasket. To hell in a handbasket. We use this saying, to hell in a handbasket, when we speak of those who are uh, living recklessly, or those who are, or who are living unrighteously, to those who are headed to destruction and a, and a, and a godless death. We say that, you, that you're heading to hell in a handbasket. Historians have debated the origins of this saying. Some think that it goes back to the baskets that were used to catch heads in guillotines in the 18th century. That's a graphic image. You know, there's a literal head in a, in a handbasket in that case. In the 19th century, the phrase to hell in a handbasket was uh, associated with the gold rush, historians report. In the 1840s, men would be lowered in baskets down mining shafts to set explosives and there were all sorts of fatalities and injuries as a result, and, and so the, the saying was used in that context, to hell in a handbasket. In the 1800s, the saying begins to appear in our American culture more in, in writings, and it really catches on in the 1900s to become a common way of describing those who are headed on the wrong path. Now, beyond individuals that are headed on the wrong path, we use to hell in a handbasket to speak of cultures, like, like broader groups as well. In fact, in our culture, many are rightly concerned that, you know, the United States of America is heading to hell in a handbasket. Our country has become godless. Uh, we, we have corrupt powers. We have abuse. We have all sorts of isms that are destroying the land. Uh, we have faithful churches that are struggling uh, we, meanwhile, we have charlatans and bootlegger preachers and politician pastors who are thriving, and their, their, their churches are just growing and growing. It's a struggle in this culture. Secular culture is literally cannibalizing itself by doing the unthinkable, things that you know, my grandparents would have never thought they would see in their lifetime. We are, as a nation, as a culture, diving headfirst into hell. The title of my sermon today is Diving to Hell. It is a play on the traditional name given to a rich man who goes to hell in a famous parable the historical Jesus gave that is recorded in a first century document known as the Gospel of Luke. In fact, get your Bibles open to the Gospel of Luke and I'm going to take you to that passage and we're going to make a pit stop on the way before we do. Dives in Latin is a word that means a rich person. Um, it's related to another Latin word, divus, that means favored by the gods. You see, the Romans and the pagans at the time uh, uh, of, of Jesus in and around that time, they believed that the rich, the dives, were divus. That is, they were favored by the gods. Uh, back in the first century, 2,000 years ago, they held to a prosperity gospel. A name it and claim it prosperity gospel, this health and wealth nonsense that is still being peddled today in the megachurch American religion and popular personalities like Paula White, Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, and I'd be here all day rattling off the names, but this, this idea that the rich are favored, that if, you, if you're a, you know, a good person, you, know, you scratch God's back, he, he scratches yours. In our study today, we'll see Jesus expose this ancient heresy, and so you need to have the Gospel of Luke open, and we're going to get to that parable, but first I said we're going to make a pit stop, and we'll do that in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. So this ancient document, this copy of it that you have in your hands, I have my copy in front of me, the original dates back to the first century. It was written by the historical figure Luke, who was a medical doctor. He was a brilliant, educated mind who used his education and his uh, and his uh, brilliant mind uh, to write history, and specifically history about Christ and the church. He researched through the eyewitness community and uh, comes to believe these things himself and writes these accounts uh, so as to compel others with the veracity of the claims of the historical Jesus, that he was more than a man of history. He was God of eternity in the flesh, specifically God the Son in flesh, who lived a holy life, in the place of unholy and sinful humans so as to provide a sacrifice and a way of atonement and forgiveness for them. In the opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke, Luke documents the birth of Jesus and the early ministry of John the Baptist. He then moves into Jesus' interaction with John the Baptist, the baptizer, in the Jordan River, 
And then Luke moves into the launching of Jesus' public ministry around chapter 3 into chapter 4. He then moves into Jesus' ministry, highlighting and, and, and various snapshots uh, of his work in around the region Galilee from chapter 4 through chapter 9. In Luke 9.51, Jesus moves from Galilee to Jerusalem, and you can read about this from 9.51 through chapter 19, verse 21. And in this section of this historical account, we read about a progressive resistance to Jesus' public ministry. Uh, the TMZ paparazzi types are out there. They got their cell phones out, and they're just waiting to catch Jesus slipping so they can post it online and, and mock him. Uh, there's a bunch of haters at this point of where you've turned in the text to Luke 12 that, that are revving up against Jesus. In this Sunday sermon, I'm going to be giving attention to the neglected topic of hell, and hence this play on diving to, to hell by way of a title for today's message. Again, dives is a character we'll meet in the parable of Jesus, and we think of culture and other things uh, going to hell in a handbasket, just literally diving into things. Um, this is, not, this is a, not a light topic. Uh, it, it is a heavy one for us today. And we begin by reading the words of our Lord in Luke chapter 12. Draw your eyes at verse 1. Under these circumstances, after many thousands of people had gathered together, they were stepping on one another. Like I said, his popularity is coming at a high. And he began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The Pharisees were a particular uh, religious sect. They, they were middle class, hardworking, intelligent people. They, they were, as we would say, good people, spiritual people. Okay? And, and they're standing up against Jesus, and Jesus is confronting them, which would create cognitive dissonance for anyone in that first century culture, because if you're following Jesus, you think he's a good guy, but the Pharisees are good guys, so why don't they like each other? It's like watching mom and dad fight and get divorced. Or, you know, it's like, why can't you guys figure this out? You know, haven't you seen Parent Trap? Let's get along. Let, let's do this. Okay? So, so there, Jesus says, watch out for the Pharisees. Watch out for their hypocrisy. Verse 2, there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. They have no more that they can do. Nothing more they can do. I, but I warn you, I warn you who you should fear, verse 5, Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The tone is very serious. Jesus is warning the audience. There's that cognitive dissonance there. You're going, wait, we're following you, but these guys are good guys. Why are you picking on them? What's going on here? And, and he's issuing a stern warning. He's telling them, in essence, the stakes are high. You see, he, he speaks of that politically incorrect place that we're not allowed to talk about today in the culture, the H-E double hockey stick, hell. He says he's speaking about hell and he's speaking about fear. Another thing that we don't talk about in our culture, fear, a healthy kind of fear, the fear of, of God. People want God in our culture, but they, they don't want a God who, who, who strikes fear. Uh, oh, no, 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 we want a God of love and a God who lets us do whatever we want, you know. We don't, we don't want a God who's, who's, who makes us scared. This is actually a healthy and a right fear, however, that we must have when we're talking about God. We, we should fear Him. He's, he's God, for Pete's sake. And this kind of fear is missing in our culture. We, we don't fear hell because we don't fear God. Uh, meanwhile, most Americans in our culture say they believe in God, but the God that they believe in is not the God who actually exists. There's a famous quote from the theologian H. Richard Niebuhr, and he says that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. There are many, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Oh, I believe in God. You say, do you, do you believe that you deserve to burn in hell forever for sinning against this holy God that you believe in? Well, no. No, I, I don't. I don't like that. I don't like that talk of hell. Well, today I want to talk about the reality of hell and the afterlife. 
And these realms that many speak of in terms of the afterlife, specifically the realms of hell and heaven. There was a recent Harris poll that was done that indicated that 68% of U.S. adults say they believe in heaven. And 58% believe in hell. So is hell real? I would say, oh, hell yes, hell is real. It's really real, yes. Um, or some would say, hell no, they, they, it's not real. The concept of hell and damnation, they, they, no, 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 we don't like that. So I'm going to begin, uh, as I already have been, in being candid with you, which is the first point on the outline. I'm going to be candid with you. This is not, not a concept or a doctrine that, that we have made up. It is, it is actually real. There really is hell and damnation. Uh, so, so up front, uh, hell yes, we, we believe in hell, and, and we don't take this doctrine lightly. It, it's, a, it's a doctrine that, that strikes fear and examination in the hearts of those who openly consider it. And I, and I pray that you would openly consider it today. If you find yourself uh, already getting triggered a bit, and you're, you know, you're going to ask to talk to the manager after the service or whatever... And, feeling the, the spirit of Karen welling up in you. Uh, we're, we're, we're talking about the topic because it's a biblical one and it's an important one and it's coming from a place of love. On your outline, we have candidness and a sub-point for you is there is a reality of hell and there is a hell to pay. In the Bible, there is a great deal of teaching on the afterlife and specifically on hell. In our English language, the word hell comes from a handful of different terms inside of the ancient biblical world. The Hebrew word Sheol uh, is one of such terms that we'll just translate as hell often. The Greek word Hades uh, generally refers to the underworld of the dead. There's another word Gehenna, which is a place of judgment and death. And so interchangeably, Gehenna, Sheol, uh, Hades, some other terms will refer to the afterlife. You see, in the scripture, humans are believed to be embodied souls and death itself is uh, understood as a separation of the body and the soul. W when you die, what is death, medically speaking? It is the cessation of your biological functions. So, you know, when you are on your deathbed, they are monitoring your heart, your brain waves, your oxygen. Death is the cessation of those biological functions. You flatlined, and those, those, those bodily phenomenon are, are done. It's done. And that we call death, the cessation of biological functions. Now, however, the body itself is more than matter. Our human bodies are, are more than matter. And one of the reasons why we know this to be the case is consciousness. There is a consciousness that we have that, uh, and a sentience with regard to this, this lump of matter that you, you all are, are staring at, namely my body. I have consciousness. I have consciousness over this thing. I have free will. I'm able to move my, my arm. I'm able to control this thing. What is the eye that is controlling these things? The eye is distinct from the biological phenomenon that is. This we refer to as the soul. The soul is a center of one's consciousness, and so there is a consciousness that can be had outside of the body. Uh, in, in scriptures, we read about angels, and angels are like souls. They are conscious beings without physical bodies, however. Like human souls, they live perpetually. Some angels actually have been sent to hell already, according to the Bible, in punishment for their sins. The Greek word tataras, tataru, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, if you're taking notes, 2 Peter 2, 4, we read in this verse of the place of punishment for fallen angels awaiting final judgment. In the eyes of Scripture, all conscious moral beings capable of worshiping and, and, and behaving and obeying, namely angels and humans, shall be judged for what they do in this life, and the punishment extends in perpetuity in the afterlife. This is not to say that God does not judge us today. He certainly does. It's just to say that in the ending of the biological functions of your body, judgment does not stop there. We have existence in perpetuity in the soul, and we have consequence in perpetuity for our sins done in this life. And some m might say, you know, well, 
Why does it have to go on and on? Well, because the soul goes on and on. Well, but why, couldn't we just sort of pay off our debt to God and society for, you know, a few hundred years, maybe a few thousand or whatever, and, 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 and then it stops? No, because you've transgressed and sinned against a God who isn't only in perpetuity, but is eternal. And so the punishment fits the crime. You've sinned against one who is eternal. The consequence of that sin has eternal, everlasting ramifications. The punishment fits the crime. There is a hell to pay. You, you can't live like hell and escape hell. Uh, this, of course, would be un unfair, and intuitively we understand this. Judgment in the afterlife means that Hitler is not off the hook. You can't live a, a life of sin and, and, and brutally execute countless millions of precious Jewish people and then think you get off the hook, in this case, April the 30th, 1945, when Hitler shot himself. He didn't get off the hook. He did not get off the hook. I'm sorry, you have hell to pay for what you have done. And, and, and that is just. That's actually a just punishment that fits the crime. Write this down, Matthew 25, verse 41. In this verse, Jesus spoke of hell as an everlasting fire. In Luke 8, 31, Jesus describes hell as an abyss, a place of darkness, where a person experiences, as Jesus says in Matthew 8, verse 8 through 12, they experience the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Weeping, it suggests suffering. The imagery of the flame also suggests suffering. The gnashing of teeth, suggests despair and even anger, which is a fitting imagery of the darkness. Hitler is in the weeping and gnashing of teeth, and he is, he, he is uh, getting what he deserved in such a fate. Now, most rational humans, using an illustration like Hitler, they, they could get on board with that. Like, yeah, yeah, Hitler, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he deserves that, you know. Yeah, you know, a good loving God, you know, if I said, but a good loving God when wouldn't do that to poor little Hitler. You intuitively go, no, like a loving God would do that to Hitler. That's the right thing to do. A good God would certainly punish him. The problem arises, however, when we consider the punishment of the so-called less than bad among us, you know, uh, because we like to think of ourselves as uh, anything and other than uh, someone like Hitler. So what do you do with the good people, Pastor Matt? There was a famous pastor named Rob Bell, and he was uh, on a preaching tour across the United States uh, arguing against the existence of hell. And in his arguments, he doesn't appeal to scripture, he appeals to emotions. And he invokes, what about the good people? A good loving God wouldn't do that. Oh, and he, he loves to pull out Gandhi. What about Gandhi? A good God would not send Gandhi to hell, would he? Here's the thing though, because God is good, he punishes what is bad. And, and he does so fairly. He's quite fair, in fact. You see, an offense of his law brings about judgment. That's fair. It's good to be good, but goodness doesn't pay off badness. Once you break the law, it's broken. Being good does not fix that. If you choose to murder someone, being a good driver or a good taxpayer for the rest of your life doesn't fix the person that you murdered. It doesn't fix that crime. You can't you can't kill someone and stand before the judge and say, Your Honor, think of all the people I haven't killed. My goodness outweighs my badness. It doesn't work that way. The nature of the law is that it presumes obedience. Being good is obeying the law. However, since the law presumes obedience, you're not rewarded for obeying the law. That's what you're supposed to do. I don't give my kids prizes for being respectful to me. You're supposed to be respectful to me. That is the law in our home, and I'm your father and I deserve it. With that in mind, Gandhi, while certainly noble and a, a good man in, 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 in many ways, his goodness is supposed to be that way. No one is doubting him for being good. The question is, what do we do with the bad that he had done in his life? The scripture teaches that the wages of sin is death. Furthermore, the scripture teaches that if we fall short of one command, we've fallen short of them all. There is no grading on a curve. There is no participation trophy in this. Um, and sadly, speaking of participation, we've all participated in sin. And so the perfect standard of God's law to not sin, we come in condemnation of. You and I do not have a perfect record. So we die, and we deserve that punishment, the punishment of death. 
Even the Gandhis among us, that's what we deserve. Appealing to our good will not get us off of the hook. We are damned, and we deserve to be damned. We believe in a God, not just any old God, but a holy God. And a holy God will not let sin go unpunished. Uh, the God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Spirit is holy. This one God in three persons is holy. And so sin must be accounted for in the eyes of this holy God. We've all hurt other people. We've all sinned against beings made in the image of this God that I'm preaching to you about. We have all defied God in our lives. We, you haven't made it out of this, the, the, the past week unscathed. We've all sinned. We, we all deserve punishment. That is what we deserve. We deserve to be damned. It's interesting to me that in our culture, the word damn has become profane. Uh, even, you know, saying, hell yeah, you know, it sounds profane to us, you know. If you, if you said, uh, oh, son, we're having spaghetti for dinner, and he says, hell yeah, you go, hey, 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 don't talk like that, you know. Uh, we, we think it's profane. Words like hell and words like damn. I think that they're profane because they have been dropped out of our vocabulary and our vernacular because we frankly don't hear about hell and damnation, so those words become peculiar to us. We hear a lot about heaven, but very little about hell. And in doing so, we peddle a picture of heaven that is at best incomplete, and worse, it's entirely false. You see, when we speak of heaven, people like that. Uh, you know, send out an email that, hey, come to church, we're talking about heaven. You know, uh, hey, come to church, we're talking about hell. People, oh, you know, I've, this is not the week to invite a friend to come. Uh, and, the, and the, the, visit, the first time visitors this morning are like, oh man, I knew, I knew. You know, they think this is what we talk about all the time, every Sunday, it's that, that, this is what you're going to get. Now why is it that our culture recoils at this? It's because we're an entitled culture. We are a culture of excuses. Now, furthermore, humanity itself in every culture is blinded by sin, and in our sin, we are proud. We have a high view of ourselves. And with such a high view, we think we deserve heaven. I d I, that's what I deserve. In, in, in my sin, in my sense of right and wrong, uh, it's, it's warped. And so I, I like to think of myself as a good person. Uh, my friends who aren't believers, you know, oh, man, I'm so, you know, so proud of you. You're such a good guy, you know, doing that pastor stuff, you know. I'm like, hey, well, you should come on Sunday sometime and, and, hear, and hear the truth about that. Good according to who? who? What scale are you using? What measurement are you using to call me good? Have, you, you, have, you have not spent any time in my head or in my heart. You have no idea what, what rage is in there. The sinfulness of fallen man. With the popularity of postmodernism and relativism today, you know, uh, people will say, well, you, you can't call people sinners. You can't judge people. Who are you to say that humans are sinners? Who are you to judge? The logical problem with this is that the person is judging you for that judgment. But if we're not supposed to judge, then how can you judge me for that judgment? You see, it, it, humans are sinful. That's wrong. You shouldn't judge people. So you think I'm wrong. Yeah. Why are you judging me if you can't if we're not supposed to judge. You see how that works? The person is saying that it's relative, but then they're making an absolute claim, so they're contradicting themselves. The final problem is that God is not relative. And God as the creator has a right to judge his creations. And so while we humans are subjective, God's interpretation of reality is reality. And as I've covered, we stand rightly condemned by his law, and so we are guilty. And so then, hell is not something that we could call the politically correct police over. It is something that we deserve. It's totally fair. And speaking of fair, what is not fair in this discussion of the afterlife, according to Scripture, what is not fair is heaven. And so the second point there you have is the scandal of a heaven to receive. People are scandalized by hell because they think they deserve heaven, but heaven is actually the real scandal because none of us deserve it. It, 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 the, the fact that, that God would send people to heaven, that, that itself is the scandal, because that's not fair. We all love good rags-to-riches stories, but understand that this is way different. This is way different. This is, uh, this is an, uh, an, an enemy that we're dealing with in the story of Scripture. We're dealing with those who've rebelled against God and have become enemies of God. 
I don't let enemies in my house. I, I don't. You know, oh, you want to kill me? Come inside. You know, I, like, you, you don't do that. You keep enemies at bay. Sinning against God has made us enemies of him. Why would he let us into heaven? That, 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 that's the scandal. And the scandal is best understood with this word that we use a lot around church, grace. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. Yes, heaven is not fair. It's a gift of grace. It's what we did not deserve. The Father sent the Son to die for us. The Son dies in our place and extends to us a pardon that we don't deserve. Even further, the Father sends the Spirit who, who comes and draws us in repentance and faith in what we otherwise would not believe and what we otherwise would not repent of, our sin. He brings us repentance and faith. He saves us. He saves us. Now, in our culture, when you talk about salvation and saving, we have to qualify it because we don't think that we're in trouble. We, we, we think we're fine. We think we're good people. Uh, and so talk of being saved, it just goes in one ear and right out the other. Saved from what? Saved from the punishment of our sin. Another question to ask is saved from who? Saved from God. This is why we fear, this is why we rightly fear him. I stand before him condemned. I stand before him deserving his wrath. I'm, I'm called to fear him in acknowledgement of this. And in his love, thankfully, I move from a place of fear to a place of freedom, being pardoned for what I deserve, this, this death and this suffering afterlife, because I've rebelled against the one who is life. See on your outline the science of the afterlife. A further point to say before we get into this famous parable of Jesus is to stress that what I'm talking about isn't pie-in-the-sky religion. This isn't stuff that we're making up or whatever. This isn't wishful thinking. There's actually hard science that supports the existence of the afterlife. There's a field of study known as NDE, near-death experiences. It is a school of psychology and medicine that studies the phenomenon of experiences of people after they are dead. That's right after they are dead. After all biological uh, phenomenon has ceased, we, we have studies in this realm. Heart stopped, breathing stopped, no electrical activity in the brain, done. And there's experiences taking place? Yeah, and they come back to life and they describe them. According to a Gallup poll, approximately eight million Americans have claimed uh, to have near-death experiences. With technology, this number is quite high because around 15% of cardiac arrest victims are revived. Many of these are studied by scientists. In fact, there is an academic journal of near-death studies that is published by Springer in the Netherlands. I recently read an article in it by Dr. Kenneth Ring, who is a, a professor emeritus of psychology at the Univers University of Connecticut. His article, this right here caught my eye. It was titled, Near Death and Out-of-Body Experiences in the Blind, a Study of Apparent Eyeless Vision. The article reports the results of an investigation into near-death and out-of-body experiences in 31 blind respondents. The findings revealed that blind persons, including those who are blind from birth, do report classic NDEs of a kind of common to sighted persons that the great preponderance of blind persons claim to see in these out-of-body death experiences and occasionally claims a visually-based knowledge that they could not have obtained by normal means since they are blind. How do you account for that? I have a perfect way of accounting for it that involves both science and scripture. The key here in this article and this piece of data is independent cooperation. This is not a light at the end of the tunnel, you know, kind of thing. This is independent cooperation. If you want to study this further, and this is new to you, you haven't heard of this before, uh, let me recommend to you a book by Drs. Gary Habermas and J.P. Moreland. Uh, Dr. Moreland was actually one of my doctoral m mentors. Uh, he, they, they wrote this book together. It's entitled Beyond Death, Exploring the Evidence for Immorality. Uh, immortality, excuse me. We got a lot of immorality going, but immortality. They give great accounts in this book, and, and a, a ton of evidence that we don't have time to explore today. But the thing is that humans are more than matter. And so death, the cessation of our biological functions of our body, when that shuts down, that's not the end of it because we're more than matter. Mental states and consciousness do not arise from matter. 
you can't get mental states and consciousness out of, out of this podium. You can't get mental states and consciousness out of my, out of my sneakers. It, it, it doesn't work that way. Mental states of consciousness do not arise from matter. Consciousness is real. You all, you all know that. Uh, some of you are more conscious than others, but uh, you know, wake up, here we go. Uh, consciousness is real. So we're more than matter. Finite conscious minds, such as the ones that we possess, show that there is an, a, an afterlife, and there's reason for believing this. Because the mind is not identical to brain states, we have existence beyond the brain and the body. Matter is brute mechanical, physical stuff. Consciousness, however, is immaterial and non-physical. This shows us that there is more than matter. And that is what Luke chapter 12, what we just read, is warning us about. Don't fear those, verse 4, who kill the body. And after that, there's nothing else they can do. All you can do is kill me. That's all you can do. But I will warn you whom to fear, verse 5. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Now today we're, we're going to dig more into hell and we're going to study more what the scriptures have to say about hell. And in describing hell, we'll, we'll see some cautions on the lips of our Lord as we continue in the Gospel of Luke. Talking about life, death, heaven, and hell invokes precautions. It turns out that there is a place known as hell. And while that's a, a real hazard and something to avoid in this life, when we're talking about this topic, we want, we want to do some reflection and, and we want to receive the words of our Lord who uh, has knowledge of things that we otherwise would not know, but is revealing it to us in the Word. Move from Luke chapter 12, find your way to Luke chapter 15. And let me give you the first point on your outline here. We've moved from uh, the opening candidness now to cautions, under cautions, cloudiness. The things of this world will cloud our hearts and our minds from the heavenly realities and the worship of God. This is a, this is a warning. It's a, it's a caution. Because it's so easy to get caught up in the world that we lose sight of the world to come. Let's look at what the Bible says. Let's, 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 let's read the Word and, and, and hear what the Bible says. In Luke chapter 15, where I ask you to turn just to, to, to give you a little bit of, of some context here. In Luke chapter 15, you see there's the great parable about the lost sheep in verses 1 through verse 7. And then you have the parable of the lost coin. You see that? And then you have the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus is giving teachings about things that have been lost and things that are being found and the rejoicing that comes with those things being found. And then we step into this 16th chapter where he gives a parable of two men, Dives, the rich man, and a poor man named Lazarus. And in giving this teaching, Jesus uh, is, is describing things about hell that we're going to study but he's also making lessons about this life and offering us a, a caution about the way that we live our lives. Look at verse 9 of chapter 16. He says, I say to you to make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. So instead of being focused on money, you should be living a, a, a life of, of sacrifice that avoids the things of this world that will cloud your mind. Live in, in such a way that in the afterlife, you'll, you'll have friends and, and don't get bogged down on the stuff in this life, you see. He talks about being received into eternal dwellings. Jesus is speaking of something beyond the story here. He's alluding to the afterlife and specifically here, heaven. The world is more shrewd in preparing their earthly homes than believers are in preparing their eternal homes. Jesus thinks that believers are distracted from heaven because they're too focused on earthly concerns. In this, in this passage, he has a lot to say about, about money and worldly things. And he wraps up the teaching, look at verse 13, and says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. Let me emphasize those words. You cannot. You cannot have an eye on God in heaven and an eye on mammon in the earth. Jesus saw devotion to money as mutually exclusive to devotion to God, an ungodly kind of devotion. In other words, you, you can't do both. The Apostle Paul tells us that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil in 1 Timothy 6.10. 
Think about it. When we are focused on money, we lose perspective of heaven and the things of God. And money has a way of eroding the core of our lives. When a person loves earthly things so much that they can't get along without them, he will forsake all, even God, to gain temporary satisfaction. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, 20, and 21, Jesus says, Do not store up treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's challenging. Where is my treasure? Where is your treasure? Brother, sister, where is your joy? Heaven is at stake here. Will you trade the pennies of the earth for the gold of heaven? Jesus is really hitting the point home. And to make it clear, look what Luke says in, in, in verse 14. The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this, sneering at Jesus. Verse 15, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. They love money. You see, he's given a teaching on the afterlife, but he's doing it to people in real life. This is real faith in real life with real people. And because they loved money, they were sneering at him. They, they weren't interested in the realities of heaven. They were interested in the come-ups of the earth. Heaven is staring them in the face. This is Jesus, the Son of God, the, 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 the Son who eternally dwells with the Father and Spirit, who's come to earth, and he's in your presence. And instead of bowing down, Instead of rightly acknowledging who he is, you have the audacity to sneer at him. That is what the love of money will do. It not only makes you miss heaven, but it ruins your life in the earth. I read this fascinating uh, survey of, of Americans that was recently done. And the survey was asking, what would you be willing to do for $10 million? What would you be willing to do for $10 million? Two-thirds of American of Americans who were polled agreed to at least one uh, and some, some of the several following here. 25% said they would abandon their entire family. 25% said they would abandon their church. 23% said they would become prostitutes for a week. That was a weird one. 16% uh, said they would give up their American citizenship. 16% uh, said they would leave their spouses. 10% would withhold testimony and let a murderer go free. That's dark. 7% uh, said they would kill a stranger for $10 million. Yeah, I'll kill someone I don't know. 3% uh, said they would put their children up for adoption. Uh, I mean, you think like what people will do for money. And Jesus knew how the things of the world could pervert the human heart. Jesus wants to teach his disciples, his followers, these, these things. And so he knows their hearts and he's talking to matters of the heart. And this is why, being candid up front about the reality of hell and just, hey, let's talk about why we don't like talking about hell, because our, our hearts are fallen. And we don't like, we don't like the idea of, uh, of us not being, you know, perfect and good and these sorts of things. So the cloudiness is being exposed. The second point on your outline, condemnation. God knows our hearts. He can see through our pretensions and he will judge. He will judge us fairly in love and in truth. This should be scary to us because the Bible teaches that our hearts are messed up. Our hearts are bent against God. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9 that our hearts are deceitful and wicked. So this is scary, this, this point before us, because it means that we can't fake our way into heaven because God will see right through us. You can fool people, but you can't fool God. You can justify yourself in the eyes of men, but not in the eyes of God. Jesus knows what is in the hearts of those he's talking to, and he knows what's in our hearts, and we will be unable to hide from his holy gaze. It's like, you know, it's like trying to lie to get into a movie. When I was a teenager and we wanted to see movies that we weren't old enough to see or whatever, we knew which theaters to hit. The one down in the marina was kind of shady, so we'd go down there. Yeah, I'm 18, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, of course I am. And then you get into the movie theater, you know. So you, you, you lie to get in. But the, the fact of the matter is you can fool the, 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 you know, the, the, the person working at the counter, but you're not going to be able to fool God. And so God doesn't let people in with deceitful hearts that justify themselves. Look at what the text says, verse 17. You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. 
You know what that means, to justify yourself? To justify means to make something right. So to justify yourself is to tell yourself that you were right. Say you did something bad, you, you stole, and you were caught. You, you might justify yourself saying, well, I stole because I was hungry, or I stole because, you know, so-and-so needed such-and-such or whatever. You, you're justifying it. You know what God thinks about those who justify themselves? Look at the passage. Verse 15, it's detestable in his sight. If you, I mean, that's harsh, detestable, detestable. So what we've seen thus far is that the things of the earth will cloud our vision. What we've seen thus far is that God sees our hearts. We're, we're talking about the topic of, of hell and death and punishment, and, and, and this ought to be one that's a, a sobering study for us this morning, which brings us to point number three on the outline. We've moved from cloudiness to condemnation to counters. The human standards of this life that we counter the topic of hell with, well, well, but I'm a good person. These counters that we have, they don't apply to the afterlife. And in the afterlife, we see counter examples where what we would expect to happen based on what we see in the earth, completely reversed in terms of what happens in the afterlife. This leads us to the parable, the rich man dives and the poor man, Lazarus. Draw your eyes at verse 19, Luke 16, 19. Luke 16, 19. Now there was a rich man. He was habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man, verse 20, named Lazarus, who was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table, even the dogs came and licked his sores. That's, that's gross, dogs licking your sores. Now, I know, we're a dog culture, so you see people kissing their dogs on the lips and all that all the time, and, you know, you know we, we like the dog licks and all that. But in this culture, dogs were viewed as unclean animals uh, in a way that we would view rats. You know, you might do a little, little Instagram, little Instagram with your dog licking your face, but if you got a rat licking your face, we all go, oh, you're gross, that's, that's gross. Uh, don't send me an email if you're into rats. I'm just trying to find a cultural equivalent here. You know, they're, they're unwelcome. They're, they're dirty in that culture. So dogs would not be allowed in the temple because they are unclean. So there's two characters in the text, a rich guy and a poor guy. Dives in Lazarus. The, the rich guy is actually nameless. Traditionally, he's been called Dives because, uh, as I shared in the beginning, of the Latin and what have you, but he's nameless. He's nameless. I think that's intentional. He, he's, he's balling out of control. He's sporting the purple linen, as Excel tells us. Purple was royal. It was an expensive form of clothing. Jesus, no doubt, uses this description to portray a man who is living in ostentious uh, 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 luxury. Uh, or I would just say he's balling out of control. The complete opposite is Lazarus. Lazarus has nothing but dirty dogs licking him. So Dives has it all. He has it all. He has it all. Lazarus has nothing. He has it horribly. He was covered in sores. Maybe that's why he's poor. He has some kind of a disease. He was so hungry that, that he would eat leftovers. He'd eat, he'd eat out of the trash. In a, in a culture like this, as I shared in the beginning, they had a health, wealth, uh, uh, heresy going on where they thought that if you were rich it's because you were favored by God and if you were poor it's because you were looked down by the gods this is the role reversal of the passage Jesus in giving a parable with the character who's rich and ballin you think he's the godly one and now it takes a turn because the one who they would assume is godly ends up in hell verse 22 the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side that's an idiom for heaven. The rich man died and was buried, verse 23, in hell, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the toe of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. So we see the realities of heaven and hell. A rich guy who ends up in an unexpected place. This is the point before us. The human standards of this life don't necessarily apply to the afterlife. You might be the richest guy on earth, but you cannot buy God's favor with money. The rich guy cannot sneak past God. God knew his heart. This is important because it's a wake-up call to us who think that we are godly or spiritual. And what God says is the godly are often not what you think. Those you look at and think are godly, often that's not the case. 
Jesus turns the, the spirituality of the culture. He, he, he turns it on its head. And sociologically, he uses this role reversal to make a point to his audience about heaven and hell and these realities and to challenge their presuppositions. Have you ever looked at someone and thought that they were too bad for God? You ever look at someone and think, they're too bad for God. They've done too, too bad, right? Have you ever judged someone spiritually by the way that they looked physically? Jesus is, is teasing on those kinds of stereotypes and those tendencies that fallen humans have. We have tendencies to do things like this. Understand that discriminating stereotypes are the products of sick hearts. And Jesus is exposing the sickness of the heart by using these stereotypes and flipping the script on them. I want to challenge us that, uh, to see that today. And as we're thinking of the reality of hell, to, to confront uh, in, any kind of laying dormant presupposition that you might have that there are people who are somehow too bad for God. God loves people and he wants to reach out to them. This chapter, we, the, the chapter before it, is all about the lost being found and all about God's love for the lost. And maybe we be challenged in this and recalibrated in this lesson here today to reach out to those who are lost. So we move from cloudiness to condemnation to counters, number four on the outline, to certainty. There really is a heaven and hell where people go when they die, awaiting the final day of resurrection. Heaven is described as Abraham's side. Why? Well, Abraham was the, is the father of the faith. I mean, he's a holy guy. He's the father of the people of Israel. If anyone's in heaven, certainly it's Abraham. So calling heaven Abraham's side is, is a simple way of saying heaven. It, it goes with it. Of, of course, Abraham's side. The beggar goes to Abraham's side. The rich dude goes to hell. Hell is described as a very miserable place, we see in the text. He says he's in agony. He's in agony. His, his soul is in agony. And he, and he begs and he calls out. Can I, can I get some, can I get, can, can you help me? But Abraham, verse 25, replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. From this passage, we learn that death is a done deal. And, and, and it's, it's certain, it's certain. That death is a done deal, it's certain. And all of us will die. 10 out of 10 people die. That's never gonna change. Because 10 out of 10 people sin. And the wages of sin is death. And this is certainly going to happen to you. It's certainly going to happen to you. Now, now, now some, like the aforementioned Rob Bell and others, will say, well, but Pastor Matt, this is a parable. You, it's a parable. It's a, it's a, you know, it's just a story. You know, it's just a story, you see. And so you can't interpret it literally this way. Says who? That's not how parables work, friend. This is teaching us about the certainty of the afterlife. Yes, it is a parable, but parables make certain points. And parables involve real realities. So there's a parable about some virgins with some lampstands. I believe in lampstands and, uh, and virginity. Oh, that's literal. No, parables involve literal characters and literal concepts. You'd render all parables meaningless if you didn't think they don't have literal content in them. The point of the parable is to drive home, look, this is certainly going to happen to you as Jesus is teaching. You are going to die. This world is clouding your vision. You need to turn while there is time because after death, there is no turning as the text is making clear. This brings us to the final subpoint under cautions conclusiveness. Once you're dead, you're dead. The decisions that are made in this life have long-term effects. Thankfully, God is gracious. If you go to hell when you die, you will stay there. Notice the passage says, a great chasm has been fixed, verse 26. It's a done deal. Uh, God does not go back on his judgments. So the guy realizes his, his fate, and look what happens in the next verse, 27. He answered, then I beg of you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if, if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will repent. And he said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. 
Now, Jesus, of course, is foreshadowing in that, in that last line, verse 31, his own resurrection. And he's foreshadowing the reality that those who see him risen from the dead still won't believe. You saw me die on a cross. You heard me preach for years about this happening, and you saw it happen. You saw me dead, and now you see me alive. Will you bend the knee? Nope, I'm not going to bend the knee. I'm going to justify myself. I'm going to justify myself. And in your sin, you will go to your grave, having rejected this, this great offer of salvation, this great gift of, of grace. You know, I meet a lot of people who claim things like this. Like, if I saw a miracle, I would believe. You know, why should I believe in God? You know, I believe in science. I don't believe in God. And I go, okay, here, let me give you some scientific arguments for the existence of God. Oh, well, you know, okay, fine. Okay, fine. You know, okay, fine. You have reasons for this. There's science that supports it. Okay, fine. Would you like to give your life to him now? Well, no, no. Oh, so then what was all this science stuff? That was just a smokescreen. You, you want reasons, I got reasons. You want miracles, I got miracles. That, that's not the issue, though. Even if they saw a dead person raise up like Lazarus, they're still not going to believe. Why, why not? Why not? Because they don't believe the Scripture. The Scripture is sufficient. It's not enough. It's not enough. They can't believe Moses. They, they still aren't going to be convinced of anything. This goes back to the scandal of heaven. You see, God comes to those who are unbelieving. He opens their eyes to see and their ears to hear. He gives them a new heart, and he does it through his word, the preaching of his word, the gospel specifically. The, the power of salvation comes through the word. You don't listen to the word, you're not going to believe if you see someone rise from the dead. You'll just justify that. Oh, he must not have been dead. They must not have checked his, uh, they must not have checked him right. You know, it, it, he probably just fainted, and they, they didn't know, the, you know, science, and so, you know, he really wasn't dead or whatever. No, no, no. If you believe, if you believe, it's because you have, you have been given a gift in response to the Word of God. And oh, what a gift that is. A gift that is undeserved. We would have been ensnared by our materialism of the world like dives, the rich man, but oh, we have been set free. We are just undeserving beggars who, who have been pardoned. And in this pardon, we have become the wealthiest folks in all of the cosmos. In death, we will meet our Savior. We will not see the flames that we deserve because He quenched those flames for us. He defeated the grave for us. Are you ready for death? I want to make sure that you are ready. So listen closely. Here's the deal. We are sinful, as has been discussed. Remember, I explained how our hearts are detestable, as has been discussed. And here's the deal. Listen, God punishes sin. And He should punish sin. That's the right thing to do. God is loving and God is fair. And fair and loving people don't let bad guys get away with evil. Fair and loving people send bad guys to prisons. And hell is a prison for those who are bad. And here's the thing, we all deserve to go there because we've all done bad. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Listen, listen to the good news. God is merciful. God is merciful. And he extends a pardon to forgive the bad. But you cannot forgive without making it right, justifying. So God sent the Son to become a man to pay the penalty for men, for us. You know what the penalty for sin is. It's death. That's why He died on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin. And when He rose from the dead, He proved that He has the power to forgive and that God has received that sacrifice for us in our place. There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. Jesus said that if we believe in Him, however, we will be saved. If we follow Him, we will be saved. And if you have believed in Him, then you are ready to die. Sure, you might be scared of the way you're going to die. I'm not looking forward to that. I'm not looking forward to that. I don't want to, you know, uh, like get hit by a stray bullet and go fish on the ground for five minutes before I give up the ghost. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to suffer cancer for 10 years or whatever. And I, I don't, I don't want to do that. I, I, I met someone uh, at a wedding I did on Friday and this dear woman, she had lost her husband of, of 50 years. And it was the first wedding that she had been to since his death. And she was emotionally overwhelmed after the service and, and we were talking and she was thankful, you know, shared the gospel and the message and, and just sharing. 
And I said, you know, if you don't mind me asking, you know, how did your husband die? And he suffered for years fighting cancer. And he finally, like, turned the corner on it, turned the corner on it, and was cancer-free, and then got in a car accident that killed him. And he just go, you know, like, that's so, you know, that's so horrible. And then she had lost a son, too, and she's just, she's pouring out her heart. And, you know, and, and woven into those losses, though, in this dear, in this dear woman... In her, in her faith, is a God who is good. And she knows her, her, her husband, we all deserve death, we all have that coming. You might be afraid of getting hit by a car or, 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 or suffering from cancer or whatever, but, but we all deserve it. And the question is, are we, are we ready for what happens on the other side? Because as discussed, when those biological functions cease, you don't cease, you still exist, and you will stand before a judge a judge who cannot be hoodwinked or bamboozled. So then, we've heard the cautions. We've uh, tackled the, 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 the topic with candidness. This leads us to the conclusion. I fear that many think they have. I fear that many think that they have a relationship with God who don't. I fear that, that, that many th see themselves as in Christ, but they aren't. Jesus cautioned that many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? do X, Y, and Z, and I'll say, I never knew you. It would be an egregious sin for me to stand before uh, God's people and not challenge you to come to him in repentance and faith. I've proclaimed to you what he has done for you, and I'm calling you to respond to that. I'm calling you to examine yourselves. Jesus is, is doing that in this teaching. He's, he's confronting money and, and sin and he's using these stereotypes and all these things to really draw the people in to see what are you living for? If we really believe, if we really believe this stuff, today we'll, we'll come to the Lord in repentance and faith. Today we'll be renewed and transformed by him and it will impact the way that we live out in this week. Uh, the reality of heaven and hell means that we should spend, we should spend differently. This is a lesson that involves economics in it, a rich man and a poor man. Uh, there's lessons woven into it about uh, the grip of materialism and, and money and uh, cautions for us in a consumerist culture of, of uh, how we get money and how we spend our money and what we use it on. If we really believe, we will spend differently. If we really believe, we will secondly share regularly. The, the man in hell is, is crying out. Can you share with my loved ones? Can you share with my loved ones? There's a popular uh, genre with Bible teachers when they talk about going to heaven and hell. There's a popular genre of letter writing that is often used in this. And maybe you've seen these before. Uh, there's various versions of these letters that are written from a, a, a friend in hell. And it goes something like, you know, a guy dies, he goes to hell and he's writing this letter from hell to his Christian friend who never shared with him the gospel. Uh, it's a sobering kind of genre to drive home the, the importance of, of sharing the faith. I, I, I had an experience similar to this. Um, I was living a very radical, rebellious life as a teenager, and, and then a friend invited me to church where my whole life changed. And while I was, uh, you know, new in the church and, and, and growing in my and, 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 and faith, and uh, I ran into a guy that I, I went to high school with, that I saw every day in high school. And I said to him, I said, hey man, like, why didn't you invite me to church? Like, I could have been spared like four years of, of really bad decision making if you, why didn't you invite me to church? I'll never forget, he said, I, th I just thought you were too cool for it and you'd make fun of me or whatever and you'd never come anyway, which was ouch, because I probably would have. But, uh, you know, it, 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 the, the point here is leave today with a renewed passion to share this message. And as you share the message, it's, it's not a ticket to heaven that we're sharing. It's, that's not. People peddle the gospel that way. You're doing a disservice to the message that we've been entrusted with. We are, we're not telling people, don't you want a ticket to heaven? Because no, one, no one's going to say no to that. Forget about whether or not I believe all this stuff. Yeah, hypothetically, I'll take that. Give me that ticket to heaven. That's not, our message isn't, do you want a ticket to heaven? 
Our message is, Jesus Christ was brutally executed for you. You need to repent of your sin and come to him. Our message is, heaven is heaven because that's where Jesus is. So if you don't like Jesus, heaven won't be heaven for you, okay? So you need to come to Jesus. Heaven, heaven is, a, is, is just a, a byproduct of that wonderful gift of Jesus himself. Those who want heaven without Jesus, that's just gold digger religion. You want to get the stuff, but you don't really like the, you know, she's not my type, but, uh, you know, she buys the dinners, so we'll go out. That's, that's gold digging, friend. Share the message of heaven and hell, but above all, don't mistake that for actually sharing the gospel and the reality of sin. In the 1700s, there was what's known as the Great Awakening. And the Great Awakening was a massive revival that swept in the East Coast uh, in the United States. Uh, I began in the introduction by decrying uh, the United States and we're going to hell in a handbasket. And uh, th This was an era where things were really, really dark and in stepped uh, uh, preachers who, who, who came on the scene. And one in particular, a man named Jonathan Edwards in New England, in the village of Northampton, Massachusetts. Edwards was invited to speak in Enfield, Connecticut on July the 8th, 1741. He faced an indifferent audience, uh, an audience that didn't want to hear the message. And his title for that sermon on that day was this, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Edwards preached a very even-tempered, logical style of a message about God's wrath and, and human sinfulness. And you, you would think, this hard town that doesn't want anything to hear, Edwards, what are you, sinners in the hands of an angry God, you couldn't come up with a more like, you know, a cheeky title or something, you just, you just, you just did that? Historians and, uh, record um, and, and, and from the people who were there that as he was preaching, People were holding on to the pillars of the church, afraid that they would slide into the very gates of hell. People began weeping as he was preaching. People kept interrupting his sermon and crying out, What must I do to be saved? Edwards ended his sermon with a call to come to Christ, and the town of Enfield was never the same, and the Great Awakening swept through that. I share this to say that I think a lot of people don't talk about hell because you think, Oh, well, it's going to turn people off, or, they, you know, they, don't, they, don't, they won't want that, you know. Well, you know and you're, and you're, you're, you're beating around the bush by not describing the right and just anger of God and the consequences of sin. Historically, great revivals have swept through these lands and the lands of the earth in proclamation and sharing of these very realities we're studying today. And we share those realities. The final point on your outline... We also come and worship in response to these realities. If we really believe this stuff, we'll spend differently, we'll share regularly, and we'll sing loudly. Before we stepped into Luke 16 to look at the parable, I made reference to Luke 15 and those three parables of lost things being found. If you still have your Bibles open, look at Luke 15:10. There's a great line here. Jesus says, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. To repent is to turn from sin and turn to God. Uh, it's a great gift that God gives in bringing us to himself. And, and, and the response of this is praise, is praise in the, in the heavenly courts. It's praise. And this, I don't know about you, this is what I'm longing to see. This is, this is, this is why we're here at Delray Church. We want to see empty seats filled, and we want to see hearts filled and lives changed by the realities of a God who is justly angry at our sin, but has chosen in his grace, his compassion, and his mercy, his benevolence to give us what we don't deserve, the Son of God in the flesh. So now we come to the communion table to commemorate the work that he has done. The very thing that has been proclaimed to you of his, of his death, of his blood being shed, his precious and innocent blood being shed for us, we come now to picture in the communion table. It is right for us to sing, and so our brother Landon will lead us in song. And as we come with song in our hearts, let us also come with reflection in our minds. Are you in him? Do you know him? Have you repented of sin? And grow in that repentance. There's not a person here today who who doesn't need to cry out now to God, forgive me, cleanse me, O oh God. And in that, 
to hear the assurance of the gospel and know that there is pardon for you, that you need not wallow in your, in your sin, and you need not succumb to self-loathing, but you, you can walk in a freedom because of what He has done for you. There is power in the blood of Christ. Let us come, let us celebrate that power and the good news that He has provided for us in Him. We're going to pray, and then the table is open for you to come, and we'll join our hearts in song. Father, we thank you for your love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we, we thank you that we have gospel and law. The law opens our eyes to see our offense, and the gospel opens our hearts to know your love. Oh, Lord, it's easy to love the lovable, but to love one's enemy is a much different thing. And to think that we were once enemies of you, and you made the decision to pardon us, forgive us, and provide a way to bring us into your family. Lord, we thank you for that. As we come to the table now, I pray, Lord, that you would use this, this ordinance, this, this table, to, to, to draw us to you, and to draw us uh, from sin. Open our eyes to see our sin, O God, and open our hearts to receive your grace. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.